Hi, I'm Darcy Stoop. Hi, I'm Liam Volke. And you're listening listening to to Walk Left, the podcast. And I'm Marty Chidori. Thanks for joining us. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Excited to talk a little bit about your Fringe show coming up, Terrare, Story of Hunger. But before we get into it, I'd like to talk a little bit about Suspicious Mustache. Tell me about the company. Well, we uh, were three friends from Victoria, B.C. who met all at university, and we had another original piece that we were putting together for the student alternative company four years ago now, and which then led us to a fringe slot out there. We're like, ah, oh, great, we're going to put this show for the people to see, but what shall we call ourselves? So we, we had sort of a, a vote, a unanimous vote for Suspicious Mustache. It's like, now what does that actually mean now that we have this <laughs> name of ours? Um, we just like the sound of it. We, we like the sound of it. it was, they were all, all the names were in a sort of a similar vein, yeah. but it all sort of boiled down to sort of the dark and whimsical is what we settled on for the mandate. Those things in, in life that are almost unbelievable and maybe should be unbelievable, but for some reason have made their way onto the stage for you. So things, mag- magical realism is a bit of a term, but uh, we, like, <laughs> we like dark and whimsical for that. And this is, we did two shows out in Victoria, and then uh, we all, the third member, my fiance Kat Haywood, who's a designer with us, her and I decided to jump ship from Victoria and move out here. And a couple months later, Liam joined us. And then it was a lot of like, oh, bright lights, big city. And then, okay, we're, we're here. We're focused. Let's bring the company back to life and bring something for the people. And this is our, our premier production in Toronto. Oh, great. It's exciting to have both the, the playwright and the director of it here. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the genesis. Of the genesis script. of the script. Yeah. Well, it, it goes back a few couple of years, actually. Um, I remember... It was actually Darcy and Kat. The earliest memory I have of us talking about Terrer at all was, I think, sometime back in Victoria when we were all back in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And and I just remember you guys telling me about it uh, mm-hmm. just on a bus ride or something like that. Yeah. And that's literally the earliest memory I have. And it's just telling me all about this bizarre human being who actually lived and um, mm-hmm. the possibility for making a... a a piece of theater revolving around him. Yeah, and and sort of arose from Kat and I watching a program called QI on the BBC, and yeah. Stephen Fry had mentioned this this gentleman, and Kat and I turned to each other as soon as he was done the anecdote and said, there's, there's a play there somewhere, yeah. someday. And it kind of got tucked away into the back of our brains. We told Liam about it and a few other artist friends about it. Yeah. It's like, one day we'd love to do something with this, but yeah. not right now. We didn't have any immediate plans for it. As for the play itself, it didn't really start until, well, we, <laughs> we applied for a position in the Fringe, and then we got the position, and we thought, okay, uh, slot, I should say. And we figured, okay, we have a slot. We should probably write a play. We were just throwing around different ideas uh, about what we could actually make into a play, and this is one that kept coming up. And as Darcy mentioned, we talked to some some other friends about the idea, and they seemed to really go for it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so it required a lot of research and a lot of piecing together these different parts of, of Terer's life. He lived during the um, last days of the Ancien Régime, as it was known, uh, the old monarchy in France, and during the French Revolution. And, and we don't know a lot about his life, so it also required a great leap of imagination mm-hmm. on our part. 
So what what do we know? What was what was yeah. the germ that was planted? Course, yeah. Well, uh, the, the basic facts that we have are that his name wasn't actually Terer. It was a nickname that came from an onomatopoeic sort of expression for fireworks, which was then applied to his explosive flatulence that carried this man around. So Terer had what we would probably call in modern terms an extreme case of polyphagia. So he had an insatiable appetite, not just in the, oh man, I could really use a steak right now, but in the, like, I actually cannot stop eating sort of scenario. So he was became a, a burden to his family who could no longer afford to feed him. This is a, at a point where bread prices would take up to 80% of people's incomes. And when you have someone who eats food for five people, it's not really going to work to have them around all the time. So he was kicked out of his house where he took up with sort of a traveling medicine show, sort of thieves, vagabonds, whores, as a, a sideshow attraction, eating live eels and bats and corks and stones and things like that, until a point in which he ran away and joined the uh, Army of the First Coalition, or sorry, the Army of the Rhine for the War of the First Coalition, to fight for France, who had just deposed their king in a very violent way, and it was seen as a threat to all around, so he wanted to sort of make a difference there. But the rations that he was given as a soldier were insufficient for his condition, so he would do dangerous and degrading jobs for other soldiers in exchange for more rations. It still wasn't sufficient. He was brought into a, a uh, military hospital with exhaustion, and they sort of started experimenting on him. They fed him a meal set out for 15 people, which he ate in one bite, uh, or in one sitting. One bite would be rather. <laughs> um, so he ate the meal for 15 people in one sitting, and then they sort of thought, hmm, what else can we do with this man? Because they weren't really trying to cure him, they were just sort of offering things to him to see what he could do. And it got more, he swallowed a live eel at one stage, before the, the army finally came and said, okay, we need more bodies, what can we use this guy for? So the idea was put forth that he would be a spy. He would do this by consuming boxes containing sensitive information, messages, that would then pass through his system, still legible. So his, his body would digest the box and the message would come through in the way you're thinking about and still be able to be read by their operatives on the other side. However, he didn't speak a lick of German, was caught on his first day and was thrown back. He was actually tortured and mock executed, as, uh, as the report says, and before being returned to France where he begged for a cure and was put on sort of laudanum and boiled eggs and rusty nails and tobacco pills and just anything they could really think of to try and cure him, none of which worked. Around this time, he also would sneak down into the morgue and take bits off the corpses. He would eat poultices, drink blood, intended to transfuse other patients in some sort of barbaric way that they had back in the 1800s or the 1700s. Eventually, a toddler goes missing from the hospital where he's staying and everybody points fingers says the freak ate it so he has to disappear nothing nobody hears anything from him for four years before he reaches out from a hospital near versailles to the doctor that was treating him and he says like you know i ate this golden fork that i stole and it's cutting up my insides and i i, I want you to try and cure me but I'm, I'm i'm in a bad way here so the doctor came and what we would term tuberculosis was the diagnosis that he made at the time but Terer was insistent that it was this golden fork that had made him so sick, and he um, died in a very unfortunate way. The fork was never found, but upon autopsy, they opened him up and found that his gullet was abnormally large, and his stomach filled sort of a half of his abdominal cavity, more than half of his abdominal yeah. cavity. It was kind of filled with pus and ulcers, and if he were standing up uh, and looking up with his mouth open and you were above him looking down, you could see into his stomach. So he had very unnatural physiology, which goes part of the way to explain why he was the way he was. He was also very 
thin. Like, he, he had a paunch that would distend when he was full of food, and otherwise he could wrap it around as sort of a skin flap from one side of his belly to the, um, around his back to the other. And that was sort of, it's all outlined in this report from this doctor. But everything else that we get about him, like the world of him, the, the other people that he was around other than this doctor and a couple of military figures, we had to come up with from scratch. So those are the basic facts in a very drawn-out way, I apologize. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's quite a story to tell. Like, I don't want to leave anything out. But we had, we gave it sort of the, what I call the Andace treatment from Michael Andace's uh, Coming Through Slaughter, which is a favorite of mine, where we have a cornet player from sort of the golden age of jazz in New Orleans, about whom we know maybe five or six things. And then Michael Andace went through and just sort of created this world through these snippets of his life and gave, sort of made these avatars of the type of people in his life to, to populate this world and told this story as best he could with his own sort of original flair. So that's kind of what we've done with the sparse facts that we have about Terrere himself. Okay, so that's interesting because, I mean, just the way you're talking, it sounds like this was sort of a collaborative creation process rather than it just being... Well, um, yeah, we the three of us, we built the story together at the beginning of this process. So we were talking about, like, so what would... How can we make all these different events in Terrer's life sort of unite them into more of a coherent, cohesive way to actually make a, a play out of it as opposed to just sort of... And then this thing happened to him, and then this thing happened to him without sort of any cause and effect... And so we tried to piece together a, a plausible plot and mm-hmm. action through line. And from that, I sort of I went away and I worked on the individual different turning points in his life and the actual scenes themselves and working on the dialogue and that sort of thing. So, But it was a very collaborative process from the beginning. Okay, so now as well, you're talking about how this really didn't start finding its way onto paper until the, the Fringe Lottery took place, right? Until yeah. afterwards that yes. you decided yeah. then. At what part in the process did you start bringing in actors to work with what you had? We held um, auditions. Well, we had the benefit of Liam being an actor himself and sort of asking a few leading questions about plausibility and being such a brilliant playwright. Like there was, there was, we were able to have these discussions. We didn't actually bring in actors until March when we had a first sort of thorough draft and we we sort of approached it with the idea that we will write as much as we can and then we'll build these characters as fully and completely as we can and then we'll sort of do a workshop stage with the actors and then get their feedback and boil it down to the fringiest form that we can so it was uh, about four months between first putting keystrokes onto e-paper and (laughs) having actors come and actually read these words and then we've been we've been working with them ever since Yeah. yeah about february march when I started writing drafts of scenes, yeah. and, and then we started, yeah. Yeah, because we, we had a couple of different outlines from December, January, and then we finally had what we would conceivably call full scenes and scripts about early February. So you're dealing with a, you know, a historical personage. How well was his story recorded? Like, what sort of research well, was involved in getting the facts out? Yeah, okay, so basically everything Darcy said about his life can be found more or less on a Wikipedia page, and that's pretty much it. Like, yeah. there is also, there are medical documents as well, mm-hmm. but it doesn't go into that much more detail after that. There aren't books written about him. He features in a very interesting tome called The Two-Headed Boy, which has a, a British version called The Pig-Faced Lady, I believe. But it's uh, Jan Bondesen who put together all of these strange tales from history. And basically, he went back and read 
the uh, medical journal report from Baron Percy, who was in charge of looking after Terer in the mid to late stages of his life and treatment, who wrote this article in French that is available online. And then he, I guess, Bondison went and found it and expanded upon it and researched sort of the, some of the situations and circumstances surrounding this from which most of the Wikipedia information comes. Mm. But it's still only about three or four pages in this book is everything that we know about this man. So I, could, I don't think I could think of anything else to say about him if I tried that wasn't <laughs> just sort of filling in non-personal details. Yeah. Like it's the, the original report is quite exhaustive in terms of the treatment that they tried and of the, the what they found within the autopsy. But beyond that, it's all really been added on to centru literally centuries later by, by different researchers. Yeah. So. What we tried to offer with, the, with this play is we did sort of imagine and extrapolate on the facts that we know, but we also wanted to look at, so we look at the information that we do know about him and ask like, okay, so he was here at this point in his life and then he made this big change and then he did this, and so we're wondering, like, okay, so what was going on in his head? Why did he make those decisions? Why did he make those choices? Mm -hmm. What were the other things that were driving him? You know. So yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to probe into the the inner life of this man, whom we know very little, mm -hmm. and try to tell his story uh, as best we can. Yeah, and the some of the some of the reasons why we've made these segues between like the point in his life where he was a performer in this on the pont neuf in paris and traveling around into his narrative jumps and now he's suddenly in the army well something had to motivate that there had to be some people that he met along the way that would have sort of facilitated this yeah. this major change and i think liam's quite brilliantly brought in characters that would represent plausible and, and exciting and entertaining, I hope, different relationships that have been built that motivate the actions that he does take that are entirely blank on the page of his own history. That, that transition in particular, I'm very excited for people to see. It is one of my favorite scenes in the play. It was, it was a major point of conversation in the, the three or four months before we had an actual working script of how, does, how do these relationships feed into his major geographical leaps and sort of the leaps in his circumstances and how can we make that not only believable but interesting. You're dealing with somebody who sounds like they have this really sort of fantastical story and the accounts are, I mean, not sketchy, but sort of, you know, patchy, I, I, yeah, I guess. Very. When you're approaching this, how do you sort of find the the balance on this tightrope of of going completely down the urban myth path versus sort of keeping a sense of reality with it. Part of it, what was interesting in it for me, was not taking it to a cartoonish level, making sure that it was, because he was a real man, grounded in some form of realism. So there was a, a definite temptation, at least from my point of view at the, early on, to just go and be like, oh, he's this monster, look at the freak, which is exactly how people saw him and the reason I think story spoke to us and why we think people will want to see it is because it is so outlandish but as if I may make a nerdy pop culture inference like with Please. sort of superhero movies in the last couple of decades have gone from like look at the villains see how horrible this thing is to wanting it to be more grounded in reality especially with sort of the Batman movies as they do go to ridiculous extremes but at the core are these human beings who have somehow or another come into these extraordinary circumstances like it's not 
we tried to veer away from taking it too far to the extreme and 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 having that disconnect that people can't really see into see this person as a human being and not not trying to make him to be a monster by like innate nature but if people perceive him as a monster then it's sort of it comes more from them than from us throwing down it like look at the freak look at the freak look at the freak and actually like no there's a person here and here's how they lived with this sort of reputation yeah. because of something that they had no control over literally i think my what helped me in in getting a sense of this character also was working with yeah, the actors um mm -hmm. because my first instinct is to sort of make this very cartoonish world because it is very ridiculous and and just I don't know. There's so much opportunity for very dark humor, and I think there still is. But mm -hmm. um, what working with the actors helped me with, in at least as far as being a playwright goes, is they are advocates. the The actors are advocates for their characters, and so if they're uncertain as to why a character is behaving the way they are, they'll bring it up with me, and I I look at it and I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's true. They're what like why would this character be saying this at this point? Like, is is that there just for the sake of a joke? Or is there an actual human reason behind what they're doing and saying? Mm -hmm. So, though they they kept me accountable, that's for sure, as as well as Cat and Darcy. And so. and the actors that we've been blessed to find for the project have been really passionate about finding the the humanity in all of the characters. Because you have someone like Terrer, who, though unbelievable, was a real person, and then you have characters like Sidney Penner's character Delphine, who is kind of an avatar of the of the female influences in uh, Terrer's life that we've tried to sort of build in a whole bunch of different things to make her interesting and, and believable and serve all of these purposes that we have for her, narratively speaking. But she also has to be still be one person, so she can't be like Superwoman and the downtrodden whore and like the the bright-eyed dreamer. But also the we can't we can't pull any of these people too many directions at once because it becomes unplayable for the actors and they were all very very engrossed and committed to finding real human motivations for everything that was happening so we didn't run away on the freight train of like well this is most interesting so regardless of how it makes sense for the character let's just put it on yeah. stage which i think new plays tend to run the risk of at least in my experience running away from yeah being truly bound to a humanity. On the flip side of that, though, mm -hmm. I do think there is a lot of opportunity for just uh, in in fulfilling our mandate, finding that dark and whimsical side of this existence of, of, in Terrer's life. I mean, I I hope that the audience will find it funny because I think a lot of it is really funny and and also shocking and strange and hopefully moving but yeah like it is it's funny too i i i at least in writing it couldn't help but see the the humor in it and i hope that other people would as well and we were trying to find a place to land the genre of the piece like there was there was a potential for it to be very cartoonish there's also the potential for it to be very serious and like we're talking about a human being like, um, right, a, and I mean that's something you have to sort of keep in perspective. Yeah, yeah. like there's yeah. a there's a film that I go back to uh, in this sort of treatment of this sort of character called M. Uh, it's a Fritz Lang film from the 30s. Uh, it's about a, a, a gentleman who is a, a a child abductor and possibly molester. I couldn't really say those sorts of things at the time, but someone who abducted and definitely did kill children. 
and it's taken from the perspective of the townspeople and the the underground crime organizations and how he's they all sort of sort of form this uneasy alliance to capture this guy who's making everybody look bad and he's made out to be this big monstrous ogre and at the end they have this sort of kangaroo court and instead of just like going off and and saying oh yes I'm a monster he he turns around and he says look I'm I'm sick I don't want to do these things I I know it's wrong I know I'm causing everybody pain I know I'm not right like you don't don't just lock me away and never think about me help me and that's the sort of the sort of approach I wanted to have with Terer in keeping him grounded and then not making it this sort of big but we didn't want to go too far in the whole like now this is a this is a, a play about illness and we need to treat everybody well because there are lots of great plays about that but I didn't think that would necessarily fit for what we were trying to do so we didn't want to go too serious didn't want to go too cartoonish we wanted to find a really honest story within the two extremes are there things that you want an audience thinking about coming into this we want we want them to be a good question we want them to be open to 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 their fascination but we want them to also be looking for trying to solve answer the question of why they're and we want them to think about what part of the story they're interested in but also why because a question we do ask within the play is like Yes, people will pay you to because you're disgusting and you're doing this grotesque thing for us, but yet we can't stop looking away. Like there are certain elements that draw us to like the, the car wreck scenario. Yeah. Like, oh, it's it's horrible and it's awful, but I can't stop looking at it. And that's a feeling that I've never really been able to tangibly pin down, but it's something that's fascinating for me to think about. Okay, you 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 flip through your fringe program and you listen to Walk Left and you've decided to come see Chirer because I think it's okay to admit that it's because you kind of want to look at the freak. Uh, and I want people to, to think about why that is. What part of us wants to see the extreme parts of humanity to the point that we will, we will line up and pay money to do so. It's a good answer. Wish I thought of that. <laughs> it's just the mind meld. It was actually <laughs> Yeah. Uh, another thing that came up in the, that seemed to keep coming up in the play was this, I was sort of exploring with that idea of voyeurism the the nature of of performance and and theater as well uh, because what he does he he spends a large portion of his adult life as a performer and so it it sort of, it does in a way draw attention to itself because we are doing a play about a performer and so that has that sort of oh, okay yeah it's it's theater on stage but mm-hmm. um in one rehearsal, I, I glibly referred to Terer's illness as, a, as our need as artists to create art and not necessarily consuming things, although I, there's enough consumption criticism and, hey, look at you being all capitalist art floating around. We didn't want to condemn that, but it's also something to be remarked upon, the, these insatiable drives that we do have and how and what, and a lot of what Terer's performance comes out of is like doing the best with what you have. Like, he, he comes from poverty. He doesn't have um, any sort of trade skills. What he has is this insatiable hunger, so he uses that to the best of his ability. It's the same thing with the, the Delphine's character. She, all she really has is her wits and her, like, her body, her singing ability, as well as her body for the prostitution aspects of her job. Uh, and about, like, that's basically what we're all trying to off, put on offer as artists. It's just like, well... I'm not really that interested in, you know, putting your taxes together for you, but here's 
let me show you a thing. I think because like, the, the play is titled Terrera's Story of Hunger, and hunger is a huge part uh, on all, all different levels. What fascinates me about Terrera is just this, he, he sort of reminds me of the fact that we are, our actions aren't necessarily as conscious and rational as we may think they are. We're driven by other urges. And um, because of the nature of his life, he was more aware of those urges than other people might be. But you know, we're not always the most rational creatures that we, we like to flatter ourselves with mm. thinking we are. And yeah, and, and there are other forces within us and around us that sort of that do control us. And in some ways it can be soul destroying, in other ways it can be liberating to allow those forces to take over. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit of both with Terer. It's something that he needs to eat, but he also hates it because it, it, it's he's a slave to it in a way. That's a big battle with Terer is trying to figure out why he, is, he feels these urges and how to control them. And that's sort of the great battle of his life. And there's a, a certain understanding that he comes to of, well, this is who I am. Uh, and one of the one of the central conversations that he and Delphine have is like, what you do versus who you are, um, which I think we, as artists with day jobs, often on a smaller level and a different level, are are faced with of like, how do you define yourself? What is it that is it your actions that make you make the person, or is it your interpretation and approach to those actions because some actions in Terer's case aren't necessarily entirely up to us some of our actions are driven by something that we don't understand and it's how we deal with them that is more character building than the actions themselves and then it sort of fleshes out a human being more thoroughly to to have a commentary on what they're doing as opposed to just going through and doing them Terer a story of hunger part of the 2014 Toronto Fringe Festival thanks for joining me guys Thanks, Thanks for having us. You did that together too. That's impressive. <laughs> Creepy. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have an upcoming Toronto-based performing arts project or production, I want to talk to you about it. Visit walkleft.ca. And so we're trying to make conceivable Batmobiles out of this story. That's a horrible thing to put that. But uh, 